Well, it's lovely to see you, lovely to see a number of visitors too. This time of year, the church family comes and goes, so for those that uh, I didn't see uh, last week, uh, you were away on holidays perhaps, uh, greetings from Lisa and I, good to see you, and many visitors here, it's lovely to have you uh, with us this morning. We'd love to enjoy some fellowship with you after the service in the conservatory there. This morning, can you believe it, is the last Sunday of January 2020? Uh, You'll blink and 2020 will be over unless the Lord returns. It'll be done quickly. After spending December and January, for the most part, uh, in the Psalms again, and with February now upon us, uh, this Sunday will be our last uh, Psalm for the summer. I have for some time wanted to lead us through an Old Testament book, and so through February and a little bit of March, we'll jump into the book of Ruth, and so pray for that. But for now, this morning, we have the privilege to look at a remarkable psalm, a God-exalting, Christ-extolling psalm, and that is Psalm 97. So I invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles to Psalm 97, and let's allow the Word of God on the Lord's Day to wash over our souls Together, what a privilege it is to hear from the Lord now. Verse 1 of Psalm 97. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him. And burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh is his covenant name. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the peoples have seen His glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so thankful, filled with gladness, knowing that you reign, knowing that you are sovereign and holy and majestic and gracious, that you're abounding in loving kindness and mercy and grace. And yet we know, Lord, that you are just and holy and that your eyes cannot look upon sin. 
Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God and pray that he would move among us as a truth teacher. That he would illuminate the truth of your word to us even in this hour. And so we come before you asking for your help. Because we know that we so desperately need it. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The Psalter, which is the book of Psalms, is divided up, as you know, into five books. And within the breakup of books one to five, uh, there are categories of Psalms. We've seen that as we've gone through the Psalms, the last three summers together. Psalm 97 is part of what are called the theocratic Psalms. Psalm 93 through to Psalm 100 all serve as these theocratic Psalms. And what that means is that each Psalm present the one true and living God as King who reigns over all the earth. In fact, look back at Psalm 93 as we set sail this morning. Look back at the verse, the beginning of Psalm 93. It says, Yahweh reigns. He's clothed with majesty. Look at Psalm 94. O Yahweh, God of vengeance. God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Verse 7. He is our God. We are His People of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Look at Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings. Tell of his glory. And then Psalm 97. But look at verse 13 of Psalm 96. Before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Look at Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm. Look at the very last verse of Psalm 98. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. Look at the verse, first verse of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned as king above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Verse 1 of Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. I want you to see where this specific location that Psalm 97 is placed among these theocratic psalms, we touched on it. The last verse of Psalm 96 speaks of the Lord coming in judgment. And then the last, the first verse of, the last verse of Psalm 96, and then the last verse of Psalm 98 speaks of the Lord coming in judgment to judge the world with righteousness. So that's where Psalm 97 finds itself in the context of judgment. Specifically, the coming judgment of the king, Yahweh as king, when he returns. This is a profound psalm. It is, as we'll see unfolded this morning, it's actually a psalm that motivates. It's a psalm that certainly sobers. 
It's a psalm that teaches us how to see the world and our life with proper perspective. It's a psalm that reminds us that God is to have the premier and exclusive place in our heart and our mind and our affection. It is a psalm that showcases King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of all of that, we so desperately need this psalm this morning, Psalm 97. I've divided this psalm into four, and it begins with, as we begin to journey our way through this psalm together now, I want you to see first, and if you're taking notes, I want you to see first, number one, the supremacy of God in verse one. Yahweh reigns. The, the psalmist opens with this banner and headline of Yahweh reigns. To speak of God reigning means that he governs all that transpires. Not some, but all that transpires in the world, in all places, at all times. And it also means that he is exercising supreme authority while doing that. It is a perfection or attribute of God that only He possesses. Earthly kings can be earthly sovereign over their earthly nation or earthly region, but God, the one true and living God, Yahweh, He alone is supreme over all the world, including over every earthly ruler and every earthly person. God's reign is is comprehensive and complete because of who God is. Think about it. He is omnipotent, meaning that He is all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning that He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning that He's all-present everywhere. And if God were not any of those things, He would not be God and He would not be able to reign in utter and complete sovereignty. But our God reigns. He reigns over every single detail of your life. He's sovereign over every detail, large or small, massive or minute. Every detail of my life and every detail of your life, He is sovereignly reigning, sovereignly in control over it all. And because He reigns, look at what it means. Because of that supreme reign of the one true God, look at what it means. Look at the middle of verse 1. We just sung it. Let the earth rejoice. Let the earth rejoice. The comfort, the comfort of knowing and being known by Yahweh, this most supreme God. And I would ask you this morning, do you truly know him? The comfort of knowing that our God reigns is immense. You know, there was a man by the name of Bullstrode Whitelock. I would have called him Strody Whitelock. He was a representative of a man named Oliver Cromwell. Some of you would know that name. And if you don't, he was a political and military leader in the 1600s over England and Scotland and Ireland. The story goes that Whitelock was taking a rest at a village the evening before he was set to sail to Sweden. But because of all the mayhem taking place at the time in England, he was unable to get to sleep. And Whitelock, like all ambassadors at the time that he was of Oliver Cromwell, 
he had a personal assistant with him, a servant. And this servant could tell that Whitelock was restless. And so he asked Mr. Whitelock a question. Here it is. You can imagine them as they're both trying to get to sleep. The personal assistant says to Whitelock, Do you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? You know where this is heading, right? Certainly, replied Whitelock. And do you think he will govern it just as well when you are gone out of the world? Undoubtedly, answered Whitelock. Then, sir, excuse me, but do you not think that you may trust him to govern it just as well while you are living? Whitelock had no answer to give, and he rolled over, and within minutes he was asleep. What comfort there is in, in, in resting, literally, spiritually, physically, resting in the control and rule and supremacy and sovereignty of an all-powerful, all-sovereign God. Let the earth rejoice. End of verse 1. Let the many islands be glad. Let the north and south island of our nation be glad. That even in the midst of our nation, from a physical standpoint, looks like it's going down the gurgler, morally, theologically, our God reigns. That's the right response. That's the only response to such a fact that our God reigns. Remember that this morning. Remember to remember that this morning when you're during the week facing a trial. Because we're told in the Word of God that we constantly face a plethora of them in all sorts of shapes and colors. But remember that. As hard as it feels and as difficult as it truly is, rest in the fact that the God whom adopted you as a son and as a daughter, as one of his beloved children, whom he loves so much, is in complete control and working out every detail of your life for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Now God is supreme and sovereign, and that's how the psalm opens. Psalm 97, we don't know who wrote it, but we're so thankful for it. So it opens that way. Now, I want you to notice the part of the structure of this psalm. Because verse 1 there is a, is a very positive declaration. I mean, our God reigns, let the earth rejoice. That's an immense positivity. Look down at verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness. That is, those who are in heaven, the redeemed saints, they declare the righteousness of God. All the peoples, those peoples that are in heaven, in glory, they have seen His glory. That's a very positive statement. Yet the verses between don't have those same positive tones. Yet they teach a very significant truth. For it is in those verses we see, and it's heading number two, 
we see, number two, the providence of God. So we've just seen the supremacy of God, and here now is the providence of God in verses 2 through 6. It is here that things begin to unfold. Look at verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, and then quite severely, it says, and burns up his adversaries round about. What verses 2 to 5 is speaking of is when this God who is sovereign and who is reigning from on high, it is speaking about when this God who is reigning from on high will then burst into our postcodes literally here on earth and visibly return to judge the world. When you read about clouds and pillars of smoke or darkness, It most often in Scripture refers to the appearance of God. And because the context of Psalm 97 is that of judgment, these are here in verses 2 through 5 descriptions of what will occur in the coming time of judgment that is very soon to be poured out upon the earth. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, which really cements this reality here in Psalm 97. Listen to this. It says, The great day of Yahweh is near. It's near and coming quickly. Listen, the day of Yahweh. Then the cry of the mighty will be bitter. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of horn blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will, Yahweh says, bring such distress on mankind that they will walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust. Their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For indeed, he will make a sudden end of all who dwell on the earth. When we looked together at Psalm 24 before Christmas. One thing we were struck by there was the answer in the end of Psalm 24 Who is the King of glory? Yahweh is what it said. And we saw there that the end of Psalm 24, when it, when it asks the question, who is the king of glory, and it says it's Yahweh, well, we know that's referring to Jesus because it was Jesus, you remember, who was ascending back. Open the gates. The king of glory has come in. He's accomplished all that he was to accomplish there on earth. Open the gates that the king of glory may come in. Yahweh is his name. And so this is describing Jesus. And when we read about this fiery display of the coming judgment in Psalm 97, it is that same Yahweh, it is that same King of glory, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, Yahweh in human flesh. It is He who is the one who will come and return and establish His kingdom and execute 
perfect and holy judgment and inflict, as we just read in Zephaniah chapter 1, he will inflict wrath upon the entire earth and all of its inhabitants who remain because those who remain have knowingly and willingly rejected him. There is going to be a violent flurry of events that will take place. Some of you are thinking, well, I should have been here last Sunday when it was all positive, when we spoke about unity and it was all flowery. But here is our God. Here is a worldview of what it means to understand our God and His plans aright. Mark Chapter 13, verse 24 says, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. You see, a part of the providence of God is certainly His sustaining of His creation and His reigning as King and the sending of His Son to save sinners. That is certainly part of His providence. But take note here, His providence is displayed, and I found this very interesting, is displayed distinctly and connected with the resurrection of the Son of God. Because from that resurrection, his providence then also includes, obviously, his ascension that we saw in Psalm 24. But it includes the sending of the Son back into the world to judge the world in righteousness. I'll show you how that connects. Listen to Acts chapter 17. Verse 30 to 31, it says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to people, to men, that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to all by raising Him from the dead. So the God who is in the heavens, reigning from on high, will step off his throne very soon and step back into our world, back onto earth, and bring forth holy judgment. That's why the end of verse 2 says, look there, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He will step off his throne And the very foundation of his throne, which is righteousness and judgment, will be what he executes. Jesus will come in fire. And just as verse 3 says, quite terrifyingly, that fire will burn up his adversaries round about. Meaning all over the place. All those who dwell on the earth. This is the Jesus you can't ignore. Lightning, it says, will flash forth. And the entire earth, verse 4, trembles, shakes. And the mighty of mountains, Kilimanjaro and the whole lot, will shake and literally melt into the ground, even melt into the sea and the rivers, melt away like wax. Look there at the presence of Yahweh. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, verse 27 says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, powerful displays of creation at the arrival of the King of Kings coming back to earth. And when he comes back, he will impose his reign upon the earth. And while it is terrifying for those who will be on the receiving end of such a judgment, we know for the church and the saints, there will be, as a result of that glorious rapture, we will be with him in glory, awaiting his return, and then we will return with him and we'll judge the nations with him. So it's terrifying for those who will be on the receiving end of such a judgment. But for us, the church and all the saints, this is something that's not terrifying, but it is vindicating. And that's what the psalmist now begins to drive. Look at verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness. That is to say... That all of the redeemed watching on from glory, that's every believer here, will be present in the heavens declaring, that is proclaiming the righteousness of God in judgment upon the earth. The redeemed are watching on. They're seeing the righteous justice of God going forth. They are watching and they are lifting up their collective voices and proclaiming that just this judgment is not unjust or unfair. But are declaring that this judgment upon the nations is just and deserving and righteous. Now you've got to ask yourself, Does that sound unloving and harsh? I mean, how can you rejoice in something so tragic? How can something so tragic be something so rejoiced in by the heavens? I'll tell you why. Because it is the day when the faith of all those who worship the one true and living God and the Son whom He sent will be vindicated. It'll be the day that the Christian faith on that day will be fully exonerated. It'll be on that day that all those who have committed acts of great evil, from murder to lies, and to those who have facilitated the murder of babies in the womb. To those who have been tyrannical and dictators who have caused devastation. It is the day that all those who have done that will be held to account when all wrongs will be made right. And just as James Montgomery Boyce said in his commentary quote, he said, only on this day of judgment will perfect justice come to earth. There is no such thing as perfect justice now. Now, those who are strong oppress the weak. 
the unscrupulous, that is the corrupt, they cheat the innocent now. Murderers now, they go free. And the perpetrators of other horrible crimes go free. But Boyce says, but when Jesus returns, there will be perfect righteousness. The helpless will now be defended. Liars will be confounded. And the guilty will be judged. End quote. That is why the redeemed in heaven will lift up their voice during this time of judgment and proclaim God as righteous and holy as he pours out his perfect justice. That is why the redeemed rejoice. And if you think, wow, that's still a bit of a stretch. How, how is that all going to take place? Well, I want you to listen very carefully to the words of Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6, which are the very words of the redeemed in heaven. It says this, After this, I heard a sound like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. A great multitude in heaven shouting. A great multitude observing the judgment of God. And what are they shouting? It says, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. This is what you will be singing in glory. Your heart may wrestle with it now, but you will sing that in glory. His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his servants. And do not ever forget the cries of the saints who were killed for their faith. Even this week in Nigeria, Boko Haram, the evil Islamic group, beheaded a pastor. They beheaded him this week and he didn't renounce Jesus as Lord. Never forget that those martyrs killed for their faith are in the heavens. As we read in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, it says this. It says, they cry out with a loud voice in the heavens saying, how long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? All injustice will be dealt justice on this day. When the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns in glory. So that's what is meant. That's heavy stuff. But if you don't understand this and you don't grasp this, then you don't truly understand our God and his ways and his plans and his providence. That is what is meant at the end of verse 6. All the peoples have seen his glory. That's not talking about all the peoples here on earth. That's talking about all the people in the heavens. The redeemed in the heavens will see his glory as he returns in glory because we will be with him in glory. So, clouds, darkness, 
lightning flashes, earth trembling, mountains melting away, fire burning up his adversaries. Hebrews 12.29 says, our God is a what? Is a consuming fire. Hebrews also says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. That is to say, Yahweh, the Holy One who reigns, He destroys everything that is unholy. So first, here in this psalm, we see the supremacy of God as the all-sovereign one in the heavens. We just saw the providence of God as this all-sovereign one then is going to, in a day very soon, step back into earth to judge the world. And now we see third, the triumph of God in verses 7 through 9. The triumph of God. It's here in verses 7 through 9 that the psalmist now moves to illustrate the exclusivity and supremacy of Yahweh that he just made in the prior verses. Yahweh alone reigns. Yahweh in human flesh, the Lord Jesus alone will return. And now, look at verse 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Now, by way of mentioning all the false gods and all the false ideals and all the idolatry, the psalmist now illustrates the exclusivity of Yahweh as the one true God among a plethora of false gods. He now, the psalmist, now thrusts that exact point about God to center stage to show that among all the so-called gods of this world, there is only one who is true, and there is only one who triumphs. And as this one true God returns to earth in judgment, all false gods, all carved idols, will be shown to be false and altogether useless, And altogether nothing but a satanic distraction. Duping people into thinking they are right with God when they're not. You know, in Bali, where we just returned from, I was surprised to see just how predominant Hinduism is. I mean, I'd been there in 98. But Indonesia is regarded as a Muslim nation. There's pockets of Christians and even Christian regions and in Indonesia you must have a you must have a religion right you must have a religion you you can't be an atheist and Indonesia by the way is one of the most densely populated countries in the world well it is the most densely populated country in the world and the island of Bali is overwhelmingly Hindu and what really struck me as I talked with various Uber drivers and locals and the like was just how much these people served these graven images and did everything to try and gain, quote-unquote, good luck. I spoke to them, why do you do that? To get good luck. Why do you do this? Get good luck. Everything is just to get good luck. And on their journey to try and get good luck, they serve idols and worship graven images Their entire existence is literally bound up day after day. We saw it every day for three weeks. Day after day, hour after hour, trying to earn themselves by works, 
Good luck. Hinduism, like every other man-made religion, will be found wanting when the king comes back. You can't earn yourselves anything. It'll be found wanting. But more than that, we see from verse 7, false worship is an offense of the highest order to God. It says, be ashamed. Be ashamed. Who serve graven images and boast of themselves in idols. End of verse 7 is a command It's a command to all those who serve graven images. It's a command there. It says, worship Him. Worship Yahweh. You see, when our God who reigns steps off His throne of righteousness and judgment and comes to execute righteousness and judgment upon the earth, when He comes, all false worshippers will be in an instant upon Christ's return, they will know that they devoted their entire life To that which does not deliver the soul, but just damns the soul. And look at verse 8. Zion heard this and was glad. Glad. Why the joy? Why the delight? Well, again... Zion, Israel, rejoices because of the vindication of the one true and living God, Yahweh. He is shown to be true and great. He is exalted. He gets glory. You see that in verse 9. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all the gods. We live in a day where most people, most religious people, know not God. They either fashion a God out of wood or stone and partake of a religion completely unlike Christianity, or They fashion for themselves a God from their own making using erroneous interpretations of the Bible and just pick it apart to soon their own desires and call themselves Christians when they are not. For they don't truly worship the one true and living God, but a God of their own making. In fact, I would go as far to say that Sunday mornings the world over for the most part, talking about general population, is the greatest act of idolatry committed in the world. When people come and say that they are worshipping God, but they're just worshipping a God of their own imagination. Both forms of idolatry are, in Psalm 97, called to be worthy of shame. So, what is to be the response of the believer, of the people of God, in light of Psalm 97. When you take the truth of the supremacy and and, and really the severity of God, when you take that truth 
that this text is teaching us that God is altogether sovereign, meaning that we can rejoice because He's in control. I mean, imagine for a moment if anyone other than an all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing being was in control. There, there would be no reason to rejoice. There would be no comfort given. But our God reigns supreme. He'll soon step off His righteous throne. The earth will tremble. Worshippers of falsehood, whether ancient pagans or modern-day false worshippers, even of some contrived, up, made-up version of Christianity, in a time where all the wrongs in the world will be made right, how are we re- to respond to all of that? Well, look at verse 10. Hate evil. That's what the psalmist says. Hate evil. I just love the Word of God. Because political correctness and fear of man and culture invading how we talk, and God just comes right through and tells it how it is. He says, hate evil. He he says that there are those that are the righteous, not in and of themselves, but through Christ's righteousness. He says that there are the righteous and then there are the wicked. God doesn't play games. He calls it how it is. And how he calls each and every believer to respond in light of these truths, he says, hate evil. That's how the psalmist concludes. He began with the supremacy of God, then showed us the providence of God. We then saw the triumph of God in that He rules over all false gods. And we see now the fourth and final heading and how the believer ought to respond. In number four, the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. In verses 10 through 12. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. That is a command. That's not a suggestion. Hate evil. In light of a sovereign God who reigns, who is at any moment about to step back into our world in visible form in the person of Jesus Christ and judge the wicked, there ought to be a motivation and an enthusiasm in the life of every believer to be found faithful when the King returns. And to hate evil is a direct display of that earnest desire. To love the Lord is to hate all that the Lord hates. And because the Lord is love, the Lord hates everything that is diametrically opposed to that love. Romans chapter 12 verse 9 repeats that in the New Testament. It says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil, but cling fast to that which is good. The heart of the one who is loved by a God who reigns over all the earth, who provides their every need, who has spared them by His grace from being caught up in idolatrous worship and falsehood. I mean, praise God. It's worthy of rejoicing that He and He alone has spared you and I from serving graving images and boasting in false idols. Is it not? 
I mean, at the heart of it, you didn't discover the truth. He revealed it to you by His grace. That's the heart of the one who's loved by God. Is to run from anything that displeases Him. And so as we allow our minds to be flooded once again, and this is why this psalm is so crucial, because we need to be reminded once again that our God reigns over every area of our life. How much that sovereign reign reflects His great love and care for us. And the middle of verse 10 shows us that. Look there. He preserves the soul's of his godly ones, and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. I mean, that in and of itself is immense. His reigning means his love and care for us. And when we allow that to flood our minds, we will then be once again gripped by his love for us, and then motivated to walk away from all that he hates and pursue him and all that he loves. That's the response to a sovereign God who's coming in judgment. Verse 11 gives more motivation. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. What does that mean? Well, what that is saying is that the light of sovereign regeneration... Sovereign conversion, being born again, is sown, is distributed to his people. And that is more motivation, more to rejoice over. The light of eternal life, the light of life in God is distributed by God to his people. David said in Psalm 27 verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. A light is a metaphor for conversion here, for regeneration. Our God sows regeneration in our hearts. What motivation to turn from all that grieves Him and to pursue Him. How thankful we must be. And the result of all of that, the, the result of such an appreciation for God and the care that He gives us, and the conversion that He has sown in our hearts, Verse 12, be glad, be glad, and give thanks. Are you lacking joy and gladness and gratitude? I mean, I know what that's like, and I know some of you know what that's like. And some of you may be consumed with that right now, a lack of gladness and gratitude. Well, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, my dear brothers and sisters, that there is a failure to appropriate God's love for you. Your love for God just goes up and down and is fleeting. But God's love for you is perfect and immense. He reigns over your life. He spares you from immense wickedness and trouble. He has sown regeneration into your heart. Be glad and be thankful. You know, when you think about the reign of God over your life, it, it has an effect upon one's life. 
There are some of you here this morning that just hold on to a form of religiosity. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe your parents were believers. Maybe at one time you professed it. But you, but you, you, just, you, you just don't follow Him. And it's been well said that He won't follow you. You follow Him. And so don't profess to be right with God if you don't follow God. When we say that it's worthy of rejoicing that our God reigns, it means it has an effect upon our life. I want to conclude with this. There are two really bad things that could happen here this morning. Number one. Believers leave here this morning laying upon the Father, as John Owen, the remarkable theologian, said, laying upon the Father the greatest burden that they can lay upon Him and the greatest unkindness that they can do to Him, which is to not believe that He loves you. That would be a travesty. The second thing would be that a person or people leave here this morning thinking that they are right with God when they're not. That would be a travesty. If you just continued to live your life duped into thinking that you were right with God when you're not. Because the King of Glory, who they opened up the gates of heaven for when he ascended, he is coming back. And there is mercy on this side of the grave. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. That he would divide family members. That so high is the cost for you to follow him that you may have to forsake relationships. Because what is more important than gaining comfort here on this earth and then losing your own soul? Or going through the high cost of following Jesus and being in the heavens declaring and seeing His glory. Some of you here this morning need to finally lay it all down and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not interested in the quantity of your faith. Oh, how that erroneous teaching has plagued many a person. That you just need to have such great faith. No, no. God is not interested in the quantity. He's interested in the quality. And when you lay your faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no object of faith with a higher quality. A simple trust and a simple faith gets the same strong Christ, as the Puritans used to say. Do that this morning if you don't know him. And if you do know him, rejoice because our God.
Father, we come before you. Glad. And at the same time, sad. Sad that there are those who will face the fire and lightning and trembling and mountains melting at your presence. That those who, who, who even now, of the one life they're given, just serve these false idols. Father, would they worship you this morning? Would they turn from those ways that they ought be ashamed of? And would they come and find in you the one true and living God, an abundance of love that you have for them through the Lord Jesus Christ? For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above the gods. Help us, Lord, to turn away from all things that are evil in your sight. Thank you that you preserve our souls. Thank you that you have delivered us from the hand of the wicked. Thank you for the light of life that you've sown as a seed in our hearts. Help us to be glad. Help us to give thanks that you'd get all the glory and all God's people said, Amen.